So, let us begin. <laughs> welcome, welcome everyone. Just no way to make a hard chair soft, is there? <laughs> Except squirm a little. <laughs> so, um, I, I had a, you know, uh, I want to just um, preface the talk tonight with uh, the dedication that I see from many of you. You know, uh, the, uh, the, the method of mindfulness is really uh, available now uh, as a secular means for touching base and correcting some of the uh, stress stressors in our life, uh, a way of looking at our, our moods and uh, thinking and being able to adjust and adapt uh, our thinking so that we don't have such self-critical or obsessive thoughts. And uh, people who use uh, mindfulness in that matter can put it, pick it out and use it, put it back on the shelf when they feel like they've accomplished what they need to do. And uh, that's going to be uh, the majority of people who are mindful, mindfully attending uh, and using it as a method. That's going to be the majority of the people. More and more people are coming into mindfulness through the door of self-adaptation and change. <clears throat> but what I find here with most of you and many of you through interviews, but just knowing you over the years is that you're more deeply uncomfortable than that. That there is something in you that using it as a methodology, uh, you can't put it back on the shelf. And there are uh, something that many of you have been carrying this uh, unsettledness, let us say, uh, for decades. In fact, your spirituality didn't begin here at all. If you look back to its origins, you probably uh, see that you've always had some sense of strangeness about you. <laughs> some mark that made you a little different in how you perceived or asked questions or were unsettled with the answers. And uh, it's those, it's you, it's that group of people that I'm most interested in connecting with in the later years of my own life because it's from that deep, that deep yearning, that deep need that keeps you going. You can't put it back on the shelf. It's, it's not even a question anymore of doing it and adjusting and then forgetting it and moving on. You can't do it that way anymore. There's, the need is too great in you. And uh, to, to those of you who who come week after week in different locations with different uh, sitting arrangements and comfort levels. To you, I say, come, let's, let's go with this thing. Because the depth of the Dharma that's being offered here for these weeks is meant to feed that unscratchable itch within us. And it's, it's not a panacea. It's not just uh, an ointment to cover over the itch. It's a deep uh, way of addressing the orientation of where the itch is arising, how the itch is arising at all, 
and a deeper level of satisfaction and contentment moving forward. So I just wanted to say that to this group because it's a very dedicated group. And so we're going to be talking now, uh, the second talk on becoming. I call this becoming through thought or thinking, becoming through thinking. And I think it's, uh, it's useful uh, to get a sense of the orientation of where this is taking us. And I love the poem that I read tonight. If I could just read a little stanza, a couple of verses from that. Uh, he returns years later. This is for those uh, who are on the videotape called This Only. That's the name of the poem by Cheswaf Miwash. And uh, the last few lines states, he returns years later, has no demands. He wants only one most precious thing. Doesn't it feel like that? Most precious thing. To see purely and simply Right, So we're not interested in the uh, comforts or the distractions. We just want to see, what's, what is this thing called life, called me? To see purely and simply without name. We realize that to call it something interferes with the seeing. Without expectations, because to expect something some, from something sets the thing up so that I cannot see except through the expectation. So I cannot have an expectation of what I'm about to see. I have to let it be quiet and simple. Without fears or hopes. At the edge where there is no I or not I. And that, of course, is the crescendo of the poem. Because what we've been talking about in terms of becoming, we've been talking about the way the Buddha shows how we have we arise as an image believed. And then the moving forward of the egoic state of perception in which we perceive life from a separate and disadvantaged point of view. But there's another form of becoming. As we become less certain of our individuality, of our sense of prominence, of our sense of position, or of our sense of being separate from, as we just allow that to unfold naturally within the course of watching, looking, questioning, seeing, being quiet with, just letting that deep itch, that deep yearning in us become satisfied through the simplicity of seeing, through the Willingness to meet life without expectations, without fears, without demands. Just being quiet, looking to see what life is for the sake of knowing what life is, not for any problem solution. Not to make ourselves more psychologically sane, although that does come. It doesn't, that's not where our gaze focuses. And to, and through that quiet, there is the sense of being both something and nothing, which is interesting, you see, because in the 
deeper levels of science, quantum mechanics, as I understand it, an object is not a distinct thing until it's perceived within consciousness. Seeing it within consciousness makes it something. This is science. This is quantum physics. That it remains a possibility or a potentiality until it's perceived. And so if we're not making or meeting life with a set of demands, if we're not meeting it through our expectations of what we already know life to be, through our knowledge, uncertainty, if we meet it simply and quietly, for the sake of seeing only, for the sake of seeing, then we see both the nothing and the something. The forms of life are present, but they're not seen as the hardened surfaces that we once believed them to be or the distinct objects. They blur. Their edges blur. Not in some homogenized way, but not separating them in consciousness so that the whole is seen rather than the pieces within the whole. And the back of someone who sees in that way is very open. There's nothing back there. There's a sea of darkness. And it's only seeing that comes from that darkness. And the act of creativity, the act of creation, which is what is seeing, is the continual creation that comes within view, within one's eyes. Always it's the perception of creativity right there. That's the something, that's the becoming, the forever becoming that is only possible within the presence of being. Not the being of someone, but the being of the true emptiness to which the Buddha is pointing. And freedom then is sitting right there at the juxtaposition of being and becoming. Between the I and the not I. And letting that play forth. So we're not looking for the eradication, the elimination the erasing of figure. That's not what this is, just not where this is going. It's not going towards the elimination of sight and sound and smell. It's going towards the quietude of being able to see purely, simply, for its own sake, To hold that possibility as your own potential is the only way to satisfy that deep itch, that deep craving 
that many of us have arrived here with. And the forever search, the forever yearning search until there is a complete and total and unconditioned settledness within that scene. So that the scene does not push us forward with some expectation or some fruit or some goal that it offers in its deliverance. That the seeing itself is enough. That the person, the person, the organization of the person is satisfied. It doesn't have to come out and search through its desires, through its fears, through its avoidance, through its need for comfort. When we search in that matter, we will only see the objects of the world that can satisfy that perception. We see and perceive the way our consciousness is oriented. So an object becomes what we see or make it to be. An object can be there to satisfy a desire or to avoid in the case of fear. Or it can fall back into the totality. And that perception is a very different perception than what the Buddha is talking about in the linkages of dependent origination and the formation of self as a someone pursuing something. But let us review how this sense of nothing, this formless being, becomes as a linkage, becomes someone within the linkage of dependent origination, which is a very different form of becoming than simply the awareness of the passage of objects, of the passage of perception within one's view. That's creativity. That's just, that's what the nothing is, is manifesting moment after moment. But this form of becoming is a rupture within the formlessness. And what ruptures that formlessness is what we've been talking about. What ruptures that fabric of formlessness? It starts with a feeling. It starts with a stirring of expectation. Something in us thinks that there is, that we can make it, or we feel, or we know that we can make what's in front of us pleasure bound, <clears throat> enticing. And so, through that, through that, we arrive. We pierce the formlessness. We come through the fabric of formlessness into form, naming and forming and calling and uh, making contact and all of the linkages and the desire and the fear and the wanting and the avoiding, that's what comes through. That's what is formed. That's what the formation looks like as it comes into its own entity, into its own self-certainty. 
the this and the that of life. And it's the play field. It's a play field. Because we then create the time that's necessary to acquire what we want and the memory of its past pleasures within the field of all the things we want. We seek out and discover, rediscover those objects and then pursue them. Consciousness full of the content and details of what waits us, what will await us, creating in its wake the sense of time through memory. You see? And the belief in time. It's not just time as some abstraction. It's the belief in the passage and the expectation and what the future holds me. It's the certainty that that future will be better than what is represented now. And with that certainty, with that absolute certainty, I refuse to look at it. But because there's, I, that's a given. I will ask questions from the sense of time, but not about the sense of time. And so therefore the sense of time sets the laws, sets the determining determination, sets the rules and strategies by which we live. But what is it? Let us all ask that question. Let us all turn back to the very basic question, what is time? Now even if you are relatively new to meditation, you can sense that time, time is conceptual. It's an abstract idea that has been placed within consciousness that we believe. Tomorrow, yesterday, even the next moment. We can't find it when we are quiet in quiet observation. Why don't we live our realization? Why don't we live from that knowledge? Why is it the next moment when we are not in quiet observation, do we use time as some sense of fulfillment, even though we saw irreversibly that it has, it's only an abstraction? If it's not, where is it? You see? That's how deeply we believe in our thinking. That's how deeply we are embedded. We have embedded our lives within our thinking. That the thinking drives the activity, even though meditation has shown us very clearly the nature of thought itself. Is it form or formless? I can't tell you. It's like, a, it's like something shadowy, isn't it? It's not really form, solidity, but then it's not really formlessness either. It's, the, it's being created within consciousness. And we are pursuing that creation because we know that if we do, 
the future could perhaps meet our expectation. And that drives us forward for a little while. That's your itch. That's your deep level of dissatisfaction. Because if it were just seeing a thought and letting it go, seeing another thought and letting it go, the manifestation of I would be very incomplete, be very happenstance. It would come up and it would go away for a long time. And then, and then. But it's, there's something that makes it continuous or feels as if it's continuous. And that's what I really, the main subject tonight is how we lace the thoughts together to form a personal narrative. We call it in Buddhism, papancha the spreading out or the elevating in tone and importance, the heightening. The spreading out across. And this then certifies, certifies the truth of thought because we can verify that our story is true. We can't verify a single thought is true because when we look at it, it comes and it goes within the present moment. So that's not the way to validate. That's, that doesn't validate us. It makes us a good meditator to be able to hear thoughts as they're rising. And, but there's still something in there that feels very continuous that's hearing thought. So it's not the end point. It's not the end. It's not the solution. It's important to understand that thought is arising here and now because it gives you the basis on which to further examine why it is that we still believe ourselves to be here even though thought is seen as arising from here and now. What is it back there that even when we explore thought, still has a sense of continuous presence that still holds the sense of, in its most subtle form, the watcher of life. The perceiver. You see, it's the memory of ourselves. And the memory of ourselves is much harder to disprove than a single thought. Because we've lived that memory. It's not an abstraction. We've been there. We did that. And now we're here and we're doing something else. So it's not just an abstraction. I can show you photos of myself prior and I can thereby hold the same expectation of the future. And the papancha narrative then spreads out, forming a film of self over virtually everything we see in life. Because that film of self coats everything with memory. And it's all interrelated. A chair does not exist independent of all the other objects. They all lace together and complete certainty of the picture we see. 
And so we may see a thought come, but we're not catching the influence and enduring influence of memory that we have that's always there. until we want to. And so we may arrest our journey forward and seeing thoughts as thought and that gets us a lot of acclaim in meditation. You hear your thoughts. That also establishes a lot of sanity in you that believing your thoughts never could. It gives you immense subtlety. And insight into time. But the influences of consciousness creating something from nothing through very subtle memory expectations from memory, moment after moment, Well, that's something else. That's harder to point, that's harder to get a a sense of. And so we need to take it from the gross level. Papancha, from a gross level. Let us just look at how thoughts spread out. It's, I have definition of papancha, which if you listen to the definition, you'll hear papancha. One commentary on papancha defines it. The propensity of the worldly, worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. <laughs> you don't need an example of, after that definition. But if you want an example, here's one that's pretty good. In the New York Times, it comments that the Lord's Prayer contains 56 words. The Gettysburg Address, 226. The Ten Commandments, 227 words. And the U.S. Agricultural Directive on Pricing Cabbage, 15,629 words. (laughs) There it is. We, is there any wonder that as we sit, as we sit watching the most simple thing, our breath, very approachable, very basic, Part of the assignment is to see the difference between the sensation that's occurring and the description of the sensation that's back constantly ready to proliferate outward with elaborate elaboration. And if we watch that rather than or at equal attention to the breath, we will see a papancha occurring all the time sitting with the breath, through the breath, we'll see the patterns from which we arise as individual 
people, often based in our pain body, we have to realize that much of the papancha way that we spread ourselves out is in reaction to the pain of ourselves. So when we're watching the breath, the comments will come up often self-critically as to how well you're doing watching the breath. And then an overlay on that is that you can never do anything right. That there's some sense of failure even in this simple task of watching the breath, as if watching the breath was simple. And you can see the pain erupting onto the scene. You can see the coding of memory, which is absolutely necessary for us to believe in ourselves while we're watching the breath. We have to have some context of ourselves in the watching of the breath in order to sustain our continuation. Because watching the breath itself does not provide that sustenance. So we spread ourselves out. And suddenly watching the breath is not about just seeing it as it is, but about the whole disposition of our skill level, our potential, and on and on. The key point, though, is that we believe in that. Even as we're seeing through the words to the actual object of breath, remembering that the exercise of being with the breath is not just to sustain our attention upon an object, but also to see the difference between the object and the belief system that we bring to the object. But the belief system, if we just are quiet enough, is in full force back there. As we gauge the time we've spent and how well we've been doing, evaluating it in relationship to the last time we sat watching our breath. And if we're sitting very quietly with pride, we notice that the person next to us is moving. And we're not. All from our pain body. All enamored and engrossed within the issues of our life. All memory fed. This then is the eruption through the fabric of formlessness into form of ourselves moment after moment. And unless we have a sense of the pain the protrusion of that pain onto virtually everything we do, which is coating everything with the film of self, as our pain, which is unattended, now becomes a part of the conversation I'm having with you and what you're thinking of me and the adjustments I make so that you might think better of me. And the disposition of me within every situation often stimulated by the sense of pain that's arising in that moment. We are led by our pain because it confirms our presence, our description of ourselves, and the work we have yet to do in the future about the pain we're feeling now. I have lots to do here. You can see it. Maybe I'll go into secular mindfulness and work a little bit on my thinking. 
not at all disparaging that. It's just that it's not a completely satisfying, not when you're touched as deeply as the people in the room here. It won't satisfy you. There's something much deeper in us that can only be fed when we get a sense of what's coming out of us. What's coding this thing? Not just re-inviting the same invitation of belief in ourselves that we've had since time immemorial. And the confirmation of our belief systems formed around issues we have long since avoided. We have to bring this thing out in totality to look at the whole of ourselves. And many times in our interactions together, I'll talk about the pain and how to work with the pain and the assumptions around the pain. I don't do that so that as a psychotherapy, I do it because those are the issues from which we will be arising, from which we will be becoming for the rest of our life until those issues are observed. They come out in multiple ways. Just spend a little time and notice the issues that come out of you to get a feeling for the prolification. What's the word? Proliferation. Proliferation. Thank you. Too much papancha. The proliferation, spreading ourselves across the landscape, always, you see, for that urge to be satisfied, something very deep and rich must be undertaken here. The journey must become much more nuanced. And what doesn't mean that we have to go hide out on a retreat. It means that we have to have the intention, the dedication of purpose, to see our way all the way through ourselves from beginning to end. Not just the feelings that might be arising in this moment. Not just the pleasant or unpleasant aspects of our immediate experience. This is something that's much more pervasive than we would like to believe. Oh, sure, I can watch whether there's a pleasant feeling in the middle of this meal and how I envelop the meal with a sense of comfort and et cetera, et cetera. Not that that isn't worth perceiving. But behind that, has already built the assumption of you who is in the process of perceiving the feeling. The person behind that's watching, the person behind you that's sitting down in its completeness, watching the breath, that affirmation of self, that's the becoming That's the scraping the bowl very close. Here's 
something beautiful. I love this verse. Perhaps it's my favorite Buddha quote. In so far only Ananda, Ananda was his attendant. So it's the Buddha speaking to his attendant. In so far only Ananda, can one be born or grow old or die or pass away or reappear? In so far only is there any pathway for verbal expression? In so far only is there any pathway in terminology? In so far only is there any pathway for designations? In so far only is there any sphere of knowledge? Only thus can the round be kept going when there is any designation of the conditions of this existence. Now that gets my attention. Because I look at all the subtle ways that I keep proliferating, I keep expanding, I keep designating, I keep terminology, I keep the knowledge base. And uh, there's one resource to the ending of that. And it was well said within that poem. I was just seeing purely, seeing simply, seeing without expectation, seeing quietly, seeing from stillness, seeing, just seeing, that makes no noise whatsoever within the manifestation of the seeing. That is the becoming from the being. Just the seeing. The creativity as it arises and passes. From the sense of being, from the background of stillness, of no movement, where the sense of I is at the juncture of I and not I. Where I can move out in definition, if that is called, or rest within the creative component of everything that's being seen continuously arising from the void of non-existence. Science is telling us that that is true. We now have to step up so that we can authenticate that place, realize it. To know it, to be it. So every cell of your body becomes quiet. No longer does proliferation have an option in stillness. No longer is there a secondary intention to keep ourselves going, despite what we're doing spiritually, with the stated objection of seeing ourselves rather than continuing ourselves, but which almost always falls flat This is where we land. This is the fullness of heart 
for those in which the word emptiness or nothingness doesn't work, then let us perceive that nothingness as fullness of heart, full caring, full embrace of life and all of its manifestations, denying no manifestation, no arrangement, no particular, no, it doesn't take a claim, it doesn't take a stand. And therefore can engage equally in discussion or stillness. This is the heart's way. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.